going to read two extended portions. Um, you don't have to turn there, but if you wish to, 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Kings 8. 2 Samuel 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given rest, him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from it, of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you, And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from that time that that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. First Kings chapter 8. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people, of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanium, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark. And they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. 
There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, with all the assembly, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand had fulfill, has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son shall be born, who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled that promise which he made. For I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So my message this morning is entitled, The House of the Greater Solomon. And I hope to make five areas of of observation with regard to how these two passages apply to the Christian practice of Lord's Day worship, what it is that we're doing here this morning, what it is that we're about to celebrate in the next service. I want to look at the promise given to David, and then a brief survey of just the first two chapters of the scripture, the first three chapters of scripture in liturgical architecture. And what I mean by that is the places and times in which God has given to his people to worship He is communicating something about himself through those places and through those times. That's what I mean by liturgical architecture. Not just the where, but the when. Then I want to look at a few of the details of Solomon's house of glory. It was a glorious house, as Solomon says to God at the beginning of his address, I have indeed built you an exalted house. I want to look at how Christ is therefore the greater Solomon. He, he says to the Pharisees, something greater than Solomon is here. And it's interesting to me that he says something greater than Solomon rather than someone greater than Solomon. I think that's in, intentional. And then finally, I want to apply this to what we experience in worship on the Lord's day. Though the glory which filled Solomon's temple was great, The glory which fills the church is far greater, for Christ has risen and ascended to the throne over all the earth. Solomon lives in Israel, in Jerusalem, on a temporary throne, creates a house, and likewise we see Jesus Christ builds a house for the glory of God. And he is not king over Israel alone, but is king over all of the earth. 
And so my aim this morning is this. As those who have inherited the promises, we, you and I, not Jews but Gentiles, we have inherited the promises, we ought to highly esteem that which we celebrate each Lord's Day in corporate worship, remembering all that God has done to redeem his people. As we're going to see, the temple was made in such a way so that the people would remember things about God's salvation so that when they came to worship, they would see something and remember, not just hear something and remember. So in examining the promise to to David, it is my opinion, the reason I read both passages, 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Kings 8, is that hearing 1 Kings 8 outside of the context to the promise given to David, it's impossible to see the import of what takes place. We must hear these events in the context of the covenant promises given to David. We remember through our reading that God graciously chose David, a shepherd who was the least in all of his house, which was from the smallest of tribes, to be the king over all Israel. We think shepherds lead the flock, but interestingly, when God reminds David of where he came from, he said, from following the sheep. God gave him great success in every battle. God protected him against all of his enemies, both those without and those within. He protected him against not only Saul, but also the Philistines. He was used by God to bring great peace to Israel. Despite his manifold sins, David further was used by God to not just establish a military peace, but high and exalted worship. Having just heard that David was rejected from building the temple, we must never forget the importance of what David did in establishing the the tent of David. David, by his heart and spirit, perceived that God was to be worshipped by the people through song. And interestingly, God never commanded David to do this. After David subdued the surrounding nations, he then desired to build a house for the worship of Yahweh. Though David's heart was not impure in this, the time for fulfillment was not at hand. When God rebukes David, it it is not really a rebuke so much as a message of postponement. In fact, there is not really even a hint at rebuke. David's desire for an elevated worship of Yahweh was not wrong. Nothing in God's answer which came through Nathan even suggests displeasure. And it's interesting to me, in fact, when considered in the light of the normal response of God against liturgical innovation, this absolutely is a seal of approval. If you remember, back to Leviticus 10, Nathan, uh, uh, Dathan and Abihu, is it, is it Dathan? The two sons of Aaron uh, invent a new liturgical pattern. They were not commissioned to offer up incense in their altars. Only Aaron was. And they take incense and they put it in their uh, incensors and they offer it up before the altar of the Lord. This is a liturgical invention. It is a uh, desire of these men to kind of do what they wish, to say what they want in worship. And God immediately breaks out in fire against them. When considered in the normal response to liturgical novelty, God's response here is clearly approval. Uh, Solomon later, as we read, will say it was good that it was in David's heart, that God said that. 
Further, God's overwhelmingly gracious promises that he gives to David after this request to build the temple highlight just how David's desires had actually been shaped by God himself. It wasn't that David was creating his own desire for God to be exalted. It was really David tapping into something that was in the heart of God. David, a man who was shaped with a heart after God, used that heart to inform what he thought about worship and what is fitting for the worship of Yahweh. It's very interesting to me that God's promise to David actually answers the very form of David's statement to Nathan. David says, I, built in a, I live in a house of cedar, but the Lord's house, the Lord does not dwell in, even in a house. And God then gives promises to David that then address both of those things, both David's house and Yahweh's house. Through the establishment of David's offspring, his house, David would not just have a physical house, but a house made of people. This, this wordplay of what a house is in the scriptures is important to see. David says, I dwell in a house. And Yahweh answers and says, you actually need your house to be built. There's an equivocation. There's a word that's used in two ways. David is saying, I have a cedar palace. And Yahweh is saying, but your kings aren't established after you. And the promise that God gives to David exactly addresses this need. God promises to make David a house made of people. That is a dynasty for his name. If you've ever studied you know, the Roman cultures or the Chinese cultures, you know about the phrases of dynasties, like the Hun dynasty or the Ming dynasty or the, um, uh, or the uh, Herodian dynasty. These are, are names that are given to the patriarchs of those lines of kings. And God is promising David exactly this, that his offspring would not only be a dynasty, a house for David, but that one, the offspring of David, would actually be the one to build the house for God. So David makes a request saying, I live in a house of cedar and Yahweh doesn't have a house. And Yahweh says to David, actually, you don't have a house and I'm going to build my house. The house that was going to be built for Yahweh was not because he needed a dwelling but rather through that house, he would communicate himself to his people. Regarding liturgical architecture in scripture, we see a great need for understanding these patterns throughout the whole breadth of God's word. Man is a creature who lives in time and in space. We are all here at 1444 Darst, and we are all now now, some of you are thinking about what happened beforehand, before you came here, and some of you are anticipating what will take place later today and throughout your week. But really, we are called to be here and to be now. And by this, I don't mean some sort of mystical sense of, you know, searching, uh, you know, navel gazing or searching the ether. I mean being fully present to what is taking place. Man only lives in the present, though he can reason about and plan for the, the past and the future. Man is a creature who lives in times, time and space, and he has senses by which he observes God's world around him. So I'm in a room with many people, and we have red carpet, and 
walls and ceilings and senses. I can feel the temperature. It's very interesting that the Greeks, to me, only recognized a few senses. Since then, we've discovered there are a great number of senses which they did not enumerate. One of them is momentum. They never really spoke much about momentum, but with the advent of machines, especially, um, we can experience G-forces and uh, the, f- the feeling of inertia, which is a sense of touch, but it's much more than that. Further, we have a sense of balance. There's an equilibrium to the places that we visit. And where that equilibrium is thrown off, we don't feel right. Knowing these things, God has communicated throughout his word by using liturgical and sacred architecture to reveal his nature in the places and times where he is to be worshipped. For many of us, when we come to the places where God goes to great lengths to describe the places where he was worshipped, these words usually fall on deaf ears because we don't place ourselves within the descriptions. And we ought to spend time, as it were, meditating upon what it is like to be in the tabernacle or what it's like to be in the temple. In fact, this, to me, is the great, narr- great uh, exegetical technique which is necessary to traverse the book of Revelation. If you look at the first five or six chapters of Revelation, and you have the Pentateuch in mind, you will see that John is entering into a, a temple. He's entering into a heavenly temple. These lessons are not merely limited to the descriptions of the tabernacle and temple, but are indeed found throughout the Bible. I want to give us three sample introductory lessons that we see in the first three chapters of the scriptures. Our first lesson in liturgy, which is simply a phrase that means the work of the people, comes in God's command to man to take dominion over the earth and to subdue it glorifying the raw ingredients into something much better and more useful. I remember back in Bible Survey 1, Father Wayne used the metaphor of a cake to describe this effect, that all work in the entire earth is like a cake, that God is the one who creates out of nothing, but men only create by taking raw ingredients. And the the metaphor is this. With a cake, you have eggs and oil, flour and milk, some sugar, hopefully a little bit of butter for the frosting, you combine them in such a way such that at the end of your knowledge and applied efforts, the flour and eggs, which are terrible by themselves, uh, and the oil, which is, again, terrible by itself, make a cake. They make a bread, which is sweet. And with the sugar and the butter formed in such a way, they make an icing over the cake. The foundation of the glorification of the sugar is set up and baked and, and it goes through a transformation process in which the maybe baking soda or maybe if there's yeast involved has done its work over time. And then there's a adorning of that foundation with the icing and then there's a rest from your labors in the enjoyment of the cake. And the first time I heard this, it began to destroy my worldview about everything in the sense that it was like a giant massive mountain being thrown in a still pond. It not only caused a ripple, it blew out all of the water altogether. 
Because all of life is this. That's what God set in motion when he gave man this command. Man is to take dominion over the earth, subdue it, and to glorify the raw ingredients into something better and more useful. Bringing glory to God by obedience into this command and being, becoming useful to his fellow man. Before the cake is finished, you can't have a party with flour and eggs and oil and sugar. You, you, have, to, you have to apply work. So as man faithfully uses the world around him, taking hold of these ingredients and applying his labor, God is obeyed and he is glorified. Immediately after this, in the first chapter, we learn our next lesson at the end of the first chapter and into the second, when God rests on the Sabbath, that is the seventh day. Remember, we don't just talk about place, we also talk about time. God had judged his work complete and delighted in it, and therefore he brought a blessing upon the weak forever. For six days, God applied his power to the world, at first bringing forth things out of nothing, and then beginning to, just like we described with the cake, to take hold of the raw places on the earth and to partition them and to set them up to be used for certain things, creating a home for the birds of the heavens, creating a home for the beasts of the field, creating a home for the, the things which swarm in the earth, the fish and the creatures. And at the end of those six days, God looked upon everything that he had made, and he pronounced a judgment on it. So for six days, God applies his efforts, he works, and then he evaluates at the end of each day. But then on the seventh day, God makes a macro evaluation. He doesn't evaluate what he did on the seventh day, he evaluated what he did for the whole of the six days. It's very interesting to me that at the time of the fulfillment and the completion of his work, by blessing on the seventh day what he had done in the sixth, each individual day is now subsumed into a larger and unified whole called a week. And again, it's very interesting to me that this week has stood the test of time in all human cultures, in all human civilizations, and it is an immutable principle of human experience. The weak is our pattern for everything. Even cultures which are not explicitly Christianized are discovered to have a seven-day pattern. And what's further interesting about that is this is our only unit of time that is not in any way related to the movement of celestial bodies. When you think about the sun, we base all of our time about the sun. Now, in the modern era, we've redefined the second, but bear with me for a second. Um, we, we travel about the earth 365 days, and at the end of those 365 days, we have completed a cycle around the earth. Each day that we have is a revolution of the earth from one place of visibility to the sun to the next place of visibility. Likewise, with the month, our month is actually quite um, dysfunctional in our calendar, but the month originally was tracking the movements of the moon. And to this day, on your calendar, you will see new moon, full moon, quarter moon, etc., because our time is based upon the celestial bodies. But God, in his blessing of the week, the Sabbath, 
he has instituted a new form on human experience, which cannot be removed. So that's our second lesson about time, our, our liturgy. Our first wor- lesson is about work and worship being related. Our second is about time. And then finally, I want to look briefly at the expulsion from the garden, which perhaps is the most stinging lesson in all of Scripture, save until the revelation of Jesus Christ. This lesson is relevant for all time. First, in sin, Adam and Eve cannot dwell in the garden of God. They cannot be in his sanctuary and live. And we will see echoes of that throughout the rest of Scripture. And indeed, in today's reading, there was an echo in this, of this, that in their sin, Adam and Eve must be cast out of the garden, for they could not dwell in God's sanctuary and live. Second, in their state of sin, being cut off from God, they would be destroyed if they reach out their hand and take from the tree of life. God said that the man and the woman have indeed become like us. We see a glimpse into the, the council of the Trinity, and they then say, now he must be removed lest he stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life. Commentators are torn as to what this would mean, and I think it would either mean one of two things, that man, in taking from the tree of life, would be preserved in his state of sin, never to be able to go through the sacrificial death, which is necessary, or that he would be immediately destroyed, as we see with Uzziah and everyone else who approaches God's temple without purity. The third thing, finally, is that if they desire to get back into the garden to have fellowship with God, they must bear the penalty of their suspended sentence. What do I mean by this? God told Adam and Eve that in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And they did die in spirit, and yet we know that their sentence was sure, but the execution of that sentence was suspended. That is to say, God in his great mercy and grace gave to the man and the woman amazing promises, which they could never receive or inherit the fulfillment of unless they continued to live even though at that moment they deserve to die. When God places an angel, a cherub, with a sword at the entrance of the garden, we learn something from that liturgical architecture, that if they're going to get back into the garden, they would be cut and burned. Have you ever played a video game where you aren't able to go through the portal or a door You can't get out of the level or into the next level until you do something else. That was written in Genesis 3 because it is an immutable spiritual principle of God's word. These three lessons are merely, in my opinion, the first echoes of dozens of themes throughout Scripture. And all of these things show up over and over again. Now, the reason why I went through those examples was this, that you're very familiar with those examples, and you've probably indeed thought about some of those examples or given some meditation on, well, why did God do this? Why did God do that? And the reason we go through these things is then to train our minds to be looking for these patterns as we read the rest of Scripture. So in looking at Solomon's house, 
we learn that each and every description of God's sanctuary throughout the scriptures is designed for one specific purpose, to teach us about God, his ways, and our necessary response to him, which ought to be the obedience which comes from faith. And the reason I say that is because without faith, we cannot please God. We cannot obey without faith. And for us to have faith, we must have God's word come into us so that we might respond to his promises. Faith is never something we manufacture on our own. Rather, faith is always the response to God's promises. And it's my opinion that as we see in a few minutes what was going on in Solomon's temple, that God was promising something in his temple. He wasn't just causing Solomon to make a place so that God would be worshipped, so that he would be glorified. It has a double function of glorifying God and preaching to the people. In the dedication of Solomon's temple, we learn amazing things about God's desire to teach his people of himself. First, at the bringing up of the ark, it was done by the priests before the heads of the tribes in front of all the people. So Solomon commands all of them to appear before the king. And it's very interesting to me the way that 1 Samuel is written, Solomon is said to make them cause, uh, be present before the king Solomon. And so there's, there's a very interesting hint of what's going on here. He causes the heads of the peoples to come, the tribes to be represented, and then he takes these efforts. Then he enacts or, or does this amazing ascension. To the Israelites, this moment was a clear reminder of God's provision into the entrance in the promised land. That is, when the ark was going up from Shiloh and Zion to the place of the temple, Solomon did something to remind the people about something. To the Israelites who were standing there this day, the going up of the ark in front of the heads of the tribes was a great reminder of what they had learned took place in the wilderness. In Numbers 10, 33 through 36, we learn that whenever the Israelites would set out, they would blow the two trumpets, the silver trumpets, and then the tribes would begin to move as soon as they saw the Levites carry up the ark and go before them. And Moses goes on to, to praise God and thank God because as they went and conquered their enemies, the ark went up and moved in front of the people. Now, we learn later in Scripture that the Israelites twisted this, treating it as a superstition, sending the ark up into battles that God had not commanded. Nevertheless, the point is this, that when Moses saw the ark, when, the, when it was time to set out, he would then announce something, let the enemies of God be scattered. Right? So arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered was the call of an awareness to the people so that they would recognize that their victory is moving forward on their behalf. Where the ark went, the people followed. It's important to see that the ark moving forward was the sign of God's continued victory and the progressive peace of the people. So they're supposed to reason, oh, the ark is going up into the temple. We're finally seeing the fulfillment of all that was promised. For God had said earlier, I will choose a city in which I will cause my name to dwell. 
And as they see the ark moving up, they see God is finally coming to rest in the land. We have gained great peace and rest in the land, but now Yahweh himself will rest in our midst. For the ark to be before the people and to enter the temple, the sins of the people must be covered. They must be atoned for. It's very helpful to remember that the word atonement means covering. When Moses is on the mountain and he hears the idolatries, the the war that is going on, the spiritual war that is taking place in the camp, um, he has this amazing phrase and Joshua with him, it's not the sound of war but the sound of singing in the sense that there was a confusion of what they heard on the mountain. It sounded like a great cry of battle, and that's probably what they heard in the spirit. And yet in the natural, what they observed to take place was full-fledged idolatry, reveling in the worship of a false god. And so uh, as, as Moses is coming down the mountain, he then judges the people temporarily and tells them, let me go back up to see if I can make a covering. The word gets translated atonement. But that's what it means for Moses to make atonement. It means to cover the sins such that they are not seen. That the presence of the sin of the people is not heightened before God's awareness. That is exactly what is taking place. As the ark is going up, the sins of the people have to be covered such that an innumerable quantity of sheep and oxen are slaughtered. I want you to, to picture this. You see 12 people or so carrying an ark on poles, and every 10 steps, whatever, another oxen has to be put to death. The reason why, it was supposed to say something to the Israelites. There is a great need for covering of the sins of this people, that this people have a great amount of guilt whereas they could not be before the ark without that guilt being covered. Again, the overshadowing of the cherub wings over the ark reminds us of the mystery surrounding God's glory. God is not to be gazed at with unveiled eyes. Not even the angels presume to open their eyes before God's throne. We learn another thing in the description of the poles, which are attached to the ark. If you don't remember, the ark was given hoops or or rings, and the acacia wood poles would then be pushed through those rings so that the uh, ministers, the priests, the Levites, could carry the ark without touching the ark. The poles which are attached to the ark in the most holy place extend outside of the holy place Uh, most holy place, into the holy place, which the Israelites could never enter. And therefore, these poles, if you can imagine a curtain with just a giant dowel rods sticking out from the, the curtain, the existence of these poles is a visual reminder of what's gone past the veil. The Israelites were to, through their priests, remember that though the ark could not always be seen, its existence was always sure. The ark has indeed entered the holy place, showing the continuity of the former covenant. It's very beautiful. The ark is a piece of furniture that was created for the tabernacle. And at the dedication of the temple, God says something quite profound in bringing the ark into the most holy place. And it is this, 
that which was the seat of my mercy and grace in the former covenant is the same seat in this covenant. You see, the dispensationalists have it wrong, not only because they interpret scripture incorrectly, but because they don't understand the significance of liturgical architecture. God is saying something. The, the ark which was blessed and was atoned for, which was the sign of the covenant, was then brought into the new place of worship. God is saying there's a continuity between tabernacle and temple. The tabernacle which was ready to fade away does not nullify the promises of God's grace as it's brought into the temple. The ark which was the hope of Israel has now entered into the tabernacle and now also into the temple and is God and has gone beyond the veil. By this, God is saying something to his people, that he does not rescind his former promises when he develops and expands them. Again, the writer of 2 Samuel goes to great lengths to describe something that actually couldn't be seen. So it's not enough that we understand the, the visual of what's going on here, but also that we read the reader's comments about what is going on here. You and I could never look inside the ark, but the writer tells us something about what is inside the ark. He actually emphasizes the emptiness of the ark, for it has nothing in the ark which was contributed by man, save only the two tablets of stone. If you remember, God himself wrote two tablets of stone. And in modern depictions or pictures of those tablets, um, we see, we hear... Uh, you know, commandments one through four on one side and then six through ten on the other. It's actually the, the case that it, it more likely was two copies of the same covenant, one for Yahweh and one for the people. Just like if you sign a mortgage uh, or a, a loan or a contract, there are two copies produced, one for the, the one who is granting the gift and one who has the obligations of return pay. This is the point is that God was saying something about what was in the ark, nothing other than that which he has put forth of his own. At the filling of the temple, we see that God who descended on Sinai with fire and cloud and glory has indeed come again. But here, something greater is seen because he's not going to break out against the people. In Exodus 19, we see at the idolatry of the Israelites, great warnings were given to the people that they not touch the edge of the mountain or break through so as to look upon God's glory. But here at the dedication of the temple, all of the people of Israel surround the temple and the glory cloud again descends, but he doesn't descend in fire and in terror. He descends in power and in glory, but not in such a way as to destroy his people or break out against them. Nevertheless, at the same time, at the falling of the priests, we learn that none can stand before God Almighty. The scriptures record these things that we might be able to see something about God and his Messiah, who is the true temple and ark and sacrifice. Christ being the greater Solomon, we understand that these promises were a mere temporary fulfillment. Remembering back to our early reading, our first reading, we see that God's promises to David direct us to listen for a greater fulfillment than that which could take place through Solomon alone. God promises to make David's name great, 
But interestingly, at the time of the granting of the promise, David already had a great name. If you remember, what sparked the initial controversy between David and Saul was the song of the women of Israel. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And the point being that at the time of God granting a promise to David to give him a great name, he already had a great name. And we have to ask ourselves, well, why did he make that promise? It's my opinion it was to suggest something much greater. God promises to David to appoint a place for my people Israel, but at the time of the giving of the promise, they had already entered the promised land and had great, almost complete victory over the surrounding nations. God promises to make David a house, but as we referenced earlier, at the very beginning of that chapter, he already dwells in a house. If all of these promises were suggesting, or indeed demanding, a greater, more transcendent fulfillment, we ought not to be surprised when they are transcended in their fulfillment. God says to David, you'll have a house, you'll have a king to sit on the throne. And then we learn that that promise was not fulfilled completely, and we ought to expect another one. Solomon did indeed build a house for Yahweh, but that house was physical and external. Solomon's temple, we know through scripture, was eventually destroyed and his throne was limited. Solomon, in fact, immediately after his death, a controversy about the kingdom takes place. His son split the kingdom in two, never to be unified again until the coming of the Messiah. In fact, this event, the splitting of the kingdoms, is so important in the history of God's people that almost all of the messianic promises concerning, that is, the promises concerning the Christ, take up a theme of unifying the people back together. If you are looking for a wonderful passage describing this, in Ezekiel 37, 15 through 28, we hear this prophet foretell that at the coming of the Messiah, not only would the kingdoms be unified, not only would he sit on the throne, but it would be the, the case that the people would once again dwell in one land and that God's sanctuary would once again be in their midst. Again, Ezekiel was prophesying while the temple was still in memory. And in the coming of the Messiah and his subsequent death, everything which Solomon's temple foreshadowed has finally come in fullness. Remembering what we just described in detail and contrasting it with Jesus Christ is deeply profound for the Christian At the dedication of the temple, innumerable sheep and oxen were slaughtered. But we learn in Hebrews 9 and 10, Christ has offered his blood up once for all, never to die again, never to need to make an atonement again for the people. The blood of bulls and goats, we learn from Hebrews 10, has never taken away sins, but only postponed their judgment for a time. But though the sins of God's people be so great, much greater than those which had taken place in Israel up to that time, the offering up of Christ's life covers all sins for all time. It's important to know this, Christian, that Christ has not merely atoned for your former sins. He has atoned for your future sins. And therefore, you can rest sure in your holiness before him. 
Though David desired to build a house for Yahweh's name with cedar and stones, Jesus Christ has now built a house for Yahweh with living stones of God's people, himself being the rejected cornerstone. 1 Peter 2, 5 says that we are coming to him, the cornerstone, and Jesus says of himself that he was rejected, but now this stone has become the cornerstone. And we, like living stones, are being built. Remember how God and David had talked about these two houses, a house, a physical house, but now a house of people? This is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God doesn't just have a house in which he dwells in. He has a people in whom he dwells. Though Moses was a faithful servant over all of God's house, the tabernacle, Jesus is faithful in all things in God's house as the son, not as the servant. Just as the ark was empty, containing only the reminder of the covenant, so also Jesus Christ has accomplished salvation as its author and finisher, that is, God himself without the help of man. In 1 Kings 6, we learn that Solomon worked on the cornerstones and the stones of the walls very far away from the temple so that the sound of the tools would not be heard in the temple, which is a very interesting thing if you've ever thought about it. Why would the hearing of the tools striking the stones be a problem? I'll leave you to think about that. As the ark passed into the holy place and its poles were then visible, the writer of Hebrews tells us Christ has gone beyond the curtain into the true holy place, not the shadowy holy place, and now remains as the anchor of our souls and our hope. The writer of Hebrews says we have a hope which enters beyond the veil or behind the curtain and is with the Lord Jesus himself. As the glory of the Lord filled that house that day, now through the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, he, as Acts 2, 2 says, filled the entire house. That is, not just of the upper room where they were staying, but that of the church, both corporately and individually. Now in Jesus Christ, our bodies have become transformed to be a temple of the Holy Spirit, over which God is extremely jealous, as James 4 tells us. Though Solomon reigned over Israel for a short time, bringing great wealth and glory, the glory of the nations, Christ now reigns for all time. And as the entire scriptures say, the nations will stream up to him and they will bring their wealth and their tribute. It's it's an amazing phrase that Isaiah 2 says, they'll stream. The, The procession up to God's throne will be so constant that the people will look like a river moving forward to the Lord. Though the glory which filled Solomon's temple was great, the glory which fills his church is far greater. Why? Because Christ is the substance, and he has come. He not only has died, but he has risen. And he's not only risen, but he has ascended, and he's entered beyond the veil and is seated at the hand of power on the throne. What we do each week in Lord's Day worship, therefore, is designed to be a reminder of the promises of God which he made in the times past and the fulfillment in Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. Each time that we gather for worship, we are reminded that we have been delivered from the world and have joined his brand new people. You don't come here individually. You come here together. 
Not only do you travel with others, maybe you don't travel with others, but at least once you're here, you're reminded that you have left the, the world and you've joined an ecclesia, the called out assembly of God's people. It is at the entrance to the church that you're reminded of this. Each week we proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ. Just as the Hebrews celebrated the Sabbath, so also Christians celebrate the new Sabbath. Jesus Christ is king forever, and as his people, therefore, we ought not to have worship that is slapdash and shoddy or hurried or distracted or overly formalistic. Our worship should be conducted with hearts that are eagerly anticipating the celebration of his mercies among us. We assemble before him being sustained by his spirit at the completion of our week and the start of a new week. By the Holy Spirit, we ascend into the heavenly throne room and join our voices with the saints long departed and the angels singing out the threefold holy. We joyfully sing of his great love and mercy which has been poured out upon us and we speak to one another in psalms as Ephesians 5 tells us, encouraging one another as we give thanks to God. In Lord's Day worship, we gather to hear his words spoken over us, the public reading of scripture, to encourage and sharpen us. We acknowledge by doing this that God has spoken in time and history, and we then thank him for that by expressing our gratitude that his work, the uttering of his word in time, has become grace to us. Why does the reader say, this is the word of the Lord? It's, it's a testimony that God spoke in time and history. And our response as God's people is, thanks be to God, is saying, thank you, God, for intervening in time and in history. We listen to his word applied, which is a gift of prophecy by which the Holy Spirit works miracles of faith among us and searches our hearts and reveals intentions. We hear a pure doctrine of the word taught with clarity, which is able to save our souls, the scriptures teach us. Finally, at the culmination of all of the worship of, of God on his Lord's day, we are invited by Christ to dine with him. We are like Mephibosheth, sinners who are lame in both feet, the children of his arch enemy. Do you remember Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, the child, the grandchild of David's arch enemy? who had nothing commendable about him. We now are like Mephibosheth, but we are transformed. We are always given a place at his table, and he teaches us not to be lame, but how to walk. Not only has Christ's mercy transformed who we are, no longer being the children of his arch enemy, but now we are transformed in what we eat. When Jesus Christ tasted of death for us, he drank the wine of God's wrath so completely such that now when we come to this same meal, all it is is wine and bread. It's a party, and it was his death. And the transformation of what takes place at the Lord's Supper is not just wondering whether the bread and the wine become his body and blood and how that works. It's to focus on the fact that Christ has so fully satisfied the wrath of God against sin that now everything we have in Jesus Christ is only grace. That's what the Lord's Supper is supposed to teach us, that Jesus transforms death into life. So, 
This is my appeal. As those who have inherited the promises, we, you and I, are the recipients of the fulfillment of that which was prophesied beforehand. We ought to highly esteem that which we celebrate each Lord's Day in corporate worship, remembering what God has done to save his people. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would elevate our understanding of what we do in corporate worship. We pray that you would transform our minds such that we behold and see and delight in that which you've given your church to celebrate. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.